may be owed some money. After 911 and 411, call 541. That's 727-541-1741. Call Gulfstream Motorsports for a diminished value report. Due to my 28 years experience in the auto salvage business, I'm very good with wrecks. So if your car has been involved in a wreck, call me for a diminished value report. Call 727-541-1741. You may be owed some money for the lost value of your repaired vehicle. And visit us at GulfstreamMotorsports.com. See the world with me. You mean it? It is my absolute honor to introduce to you the first ever World Grand Prix. Go, McQueen! Oh, that's funny, Ryder. Right <laughs> See at the race. Yes, you will see, Francesco. Like this. He is so getting beat tomorrow. These Americans are clearly master spies. Excuse me, ma'am. This cannot be him. Is he American? Look out, ladies. Majors fitting to get funky. Extremely. Then it's him. Finn McMissile. British intelligence. Go, Majors. Average intelligence. McQueen and Francesco duel for that inside line as they head toward the first turn. Lightning McQueen cannot win the race. Instead of saying ka-chow, he's gonna go kaboom. McQueen needs your help, Mater. You know I'm just a tow truck. It's his cover. Brilliant. Am I missing something? No one realizes they're being fooled because they're too busy laughing at the fool. Is that how you see me? That's how everyone sees you. Isn't that the idea? I'm sticking by you the way you always stick by me! Ready? Is the Pope Mobile Catholic? Don't you care, though? You gotta be kidding me. You might think I'm crazy. <laughs> Hang on right with me. It's the American spy. Hang on. It's now or never. To have some head gum. Gatling gun. Request acknowledged. That's your shoot. I didn't mean Request acknowledged. I didn't mean that kind of shoot. Deploying shoot. German truck. Request acknowledged. Check it out. I'm wearing Mater hoods. Make me a monster truck. Request acknowledged. What the? <laughs> and now. Hey, Rocky. Watch me pull a rabbit out of my hat. Again? Button up my sleeve. Presto. No doubt about it. I gotta get another hat. Now here's something we hope you'll really like. Hi everybody, it's Derek Bell, the five-time Le Mans winner, three-time Daytona 24-hour winner, two-time world sports car champion. You're listening to Nostalgic Radio and Cars. Welcome, you're tuning in to Nostalgic Radio and Cars, and I'm your show host, Robert. Run your computers in Google Tantalk1340.com, and you can see us live here in the studios in downtown Clearwater. Don't forget to check out our website, GulfstreamMotorsports.com, and you, where, yes, you can find out all about it. As a, in fact, if you're tuning in, you can watch me. Uh, we're trying to adjust the microphone here. Anyway, good evening, Bobby. How are you doing? Yeah, we're doing pretty good. We found another use for hand sanitizer oh. besides <laughs> just sanitizing your hands. Yeah, it's uh, now a microphone, microphone problem. <laughs> Tommy, how are you doing tonight? Oh, I'm great. I can see you now. You're up a little bit. Yeah, higher. I'm up a little higher. <laughs> okay, well, hey, guess what, ladies and gentlemen, sports fans, car guys? we got a special guest on the line with us right now. I'm delighted to welcome to the show this evening, legendary race car driver and TV news commentator and part-time movie star, uh, David Hobbs. David, how are you doing this evening? I'm doing fine, thanks, Robert. Uh, who, was that, um, who was that Englishman who was on a minute ago? The, yeah, the, the movie star? I didn't get it. Yeah, I I've never heard that name before. You never heard that. Okay, well, in that particular case. But anyway, so uh, you got a book out, and it's Hobbo, correct? That's Hobbo. your that's yeah. kind of your nickname to your uh, among your racing buddies, so to speak. Well, at school they used to call me Hobbo, and then uh, Bob Barsha always called me Hobbo, and I thought he used together on TV, and then. And of course, Lee Diffie always refers to me as Hobbo, so a bit of an Australian kind of saying. Maybe my parents were Australian, um, so yep, I've been Hobbo, and uh, we were trying to think of something what to call it. 
and Hobbo came up and um, I've forgotten what the first title was but I thought it was a bit uninspiring so I said how about you know from motor racer to motor mouth um, my son said how about gas pedal to gas bag uh, unfortunately the publisher didn't think that was quite good enough to <laughs> we're, stuck with, we're stuck with motor racer to motor mouth yeah it's a very good read so the book is about what? Is it basically a autobiography? There, she'll get an autobiography. <laughs> Very good. Yes. You like that uh, one? <laughs> it is an it is an autobiography, um, and it goes really from when I was an apprentice and rushing around the countryside in England on a motorbike, which me and my uh, girlfriend at the time, Max, did a lot of. And of course, in those days, not much traffic about. So we never dropped much below about 90 miles an hour on the old Triumph. Um, and I vaguely thought about racing it, but then I decided against that and uh, decided to borrow Mum's car. But, um, and she had a Morris Oxford, which is something you'd never even heard of. Oh, yes. Um, very slow, very mundane car. Um, I tweaked it a little bit, put a different engine in, an overhead valve engine instead of a side valve. And it had my dad's automatic transmission, which of course the only way I was a, could race really because we had cars kicking around. I would never have been able to buy a car. Um, so I raised that and uh, <clears throat> I moved on to dad's Jag. And there's a good picture of the Jag in the uh, book. There's two pictures of the book. One of the Jag, me losing control, and the other one of the Jag more or less on its roof um, <clears throat> and me looking despondently on. Um, well, what kind of so a Jag was, Jaguar was this? It was a Jaguar XK140. Oh. And drophead coupe. Um, very nice car. When I took it to the first race, it was <laughs> a very nice car. When I bought it home, it was, to say the least, a bit banged up. Um, and to make it even worse on the way home, the uh, hood, bonnet, as I used to call it, opened and if you think of all xk120 xk140 you know the hood on those cars is long mm -hmm. and it bent itself back over the over the windshield so that took a bit of tying down and um and then uh, dad said well you blow it you fix it um, <laughs> and at the time i was an apprentice at, at, at daimler daimler cars really which were which were taken over by Jag. Yeah, I, I became an engineering apprentice. And um, we were taken over by Jag, so I became a Jaguar apprentice, which is how that car suddenly had a new lease of life. I found some disc brakes in the uh, scrap bin at Jag and um, a nice C-type cylinder head and some triple carburetors, and um, it was a pretty potent car. That also had Dad's gearbox on it. Um, but my first race was not a great success. But ultimately, we won a few races now. And um, the following year, my dad's company, had a, a company called Westinghouse Brake and Signal, taking the share in his company. And they thought it would be a good idea to use the gearbox to um, advertise the gearbox with racing. So they bought me a load to leak, which obviously I'd never been able to deal other than that. And um, we raced that, and that was pretty successful. We um, first couple of races were a bit slow because we weren't very well tuned in on the car, but then a guy who had been at work, who worked at Lotus, he came on board and helped us lighten it and respring, resprung it, re, re shocked it. Um, and it was, yeah, it was a successful, successful car. That, so that's really got, got me on the road to my professional career. Last for 30 odd years. Now, I'm looking at, uh, I'm on your, on, on Wiki, which, you know, we don't know how reliable Wiki is, but in this particular case, we'll assume it's correct. Um, 1962, you were with Team Lotus, and Frank Gardner and those guys, and you were running a Lotus Elite. Now, most people aren't familiar with Lotus Elite, but it's basically a forerunner to the Lotus Elan, and it's basically a little fiberglass coupe, right? With a little Climax yeah. engine in it? Okay. Um, so you started in 62. That was, uh, it says here, that's when you, you had your first race at the 24-hour Le Mans? Yeah, now that car wasn't. I had raced the Lotus, my own Lotus Elite, uh -huh. in nineteen in nineteen sixty one, um, and then in nineteen sixty two, I had got a professional drive in a couple of Jags, an XKE, which of course then was a brand new car, and um, and a three point eight sedan Mark II, which is also a quick Jag for saloon for sedan car racing, 
And I came over here and did the first Continental three hour at Daytona in the E type in the XKE. Unfortunately, um, the fuel pump broke very early on in the race, so I was out. But then later on that year, Team Elite, which was, you know, a factory car, uh, Frank Garden and I drove that at Le Mans and we won our class and became eighth overall and we won another index, the index of thermal efficiency, which was a, a, a formula based really to make the French have a winning car, but we won that as well. So um, that was a pretty good, um, <laughs> it was one of my best, I, I ultimately went on to do Le Mans 20 times, um, and uh, that was one of my best ever results, winning the class, winning the index, and coming eighth overall. So, that was a pretty good. Uh, do you remember Frank Gardner? He was a funny guy. I never, I never there. met him, but uh, I've, I've read about him. Yeah, he was a funny guy. He always had a phrase for everything, you know. And he was really, really witty guy from Australia with lots of Australian sayings, some of which can't be repeated. On, you know, <laughs> <unfortunately>. <laughs> well, you know, you've, you've. I'm, I'm looking, and I'm, I'm, I'm kind of a GT guy because you know I used to go to Daytona because I'm in Florida, obviously, and then you know so Daytona and Sebring, and then Le Mans because you know your friends, your buddies like Derek and Vic and everybody like that, and Brian have all been. You know, we used to see you guys all the time on the panel. We enjoy that a lot at uh, at, at Bill Warner's Amelia Island when you guys kind of oh, banter yeah. back and forth, and uh, so everybody aspires to Le Mans. That is the race of races. Yeah. And you've had some pretty amazing rides there. In fact, you were talking earlier about motorcycles. You know, you actually raced with John Surtees, who's well-known for uh, racing motorcycles, Isle of Man and, and, and so on, you know. And um, yeah. I think he's more recognized for motorcycles than he has cars, right? Well, he because he, he's the only guy ever and probably will remain so to have won the world championship on motorbikes which he won multiple times, like eight or nine times he won the World Championship on motorbike in various classes, like, you know, 350, 250, 350, 500. And, um, and then, of course, he won the World Championship for cars uh, driving Ferrari in 1964. So he's the only guy that's ever won the World Championship on two wheels and four. Mike Haywood came close, um, and nobody else has really come close, and nobody seems to be about to try it again, so I think you'll remain that. But I joined him in 1966, and we did some races together, and then one of the races we did was Le Mans in 1967. Unfortunately, um, we were using an experimental Aston Martin engine, and it didn't last very long. <laughs> in fact, it broke before I even got in the car. John started, of course, in his car. <laughs> and um, it broke before I even got behind the wheel in the race. But he and I worked together, so I, I drove for John for, in fact, my first really big trip over here was John design, had, had designed and manufactured his own Formula car, Formula 5000. Mm -hmm. um, and I came over here in 1969, just me and a mechanic, a guy called Dennis Davis. And we toured around the U.S. Um, doing the Formula 5000 championship um, in a Surtees TS5A, which was the very first Surtees. And um, and we were, you know, very successful. But I lost the championship by one point. Oh! And I only did half the races. I started at race at race seven to fourteen, and um, lost the championship by one point, which was very disappointing. The the uh, Formula Five Thousand, if I remember my history correctly, it was kind of like. Uh, a successor is there a connection there between the Formula Five Thousand and Trans Am cars, or they switched over, or something like that? I mean, I can't remember what the whole story. No, Formula Five Thousand is an open wheel car, it right? Looks like a Formula One or an Indy car, and the Five Thousand come because it had a five liter engine with five thousand cc. Uh, okay, okay. And um, Trans Am, of course, was sedans, you know, Mustangs, right, Camaros, right. Or maybe I'm. Maybe I'm thinking Can-Am. There was something. Is there a correlation yeah, between well, the 5000 and, and Can-Am racing? Well, they were all run by the SCCA. They were okay. sanctioned by the SCCA. Unfortunately, the Can-Am was a, was a sort of run what you brung formula with great big sports cars. And Bruce McLaren and his cars dominated that for like five, six years, 1970, sorry, 1967 to 1971. And uh, no, 1970. And then uh, Roger Penske and Porsche 
put their heads together and said, well, if you can run whatever you want. Well, we'll run a 917 5-litre flat 12 engine with a turbocharger. So they came on and, and dominated in uh, 72 and 73. Um, and that kind of put the kibosh on can Formula 5000 was a strong formula. Had a lot of runners. Mario Andretti and Alonso were two of the top performers in there. Got John Cox drove in it. Bobby Hunter drove. Alonso was very successful. Mario and Brian Redmond dominated it for like three years, 1973, four, and five. And it should have been a good formula, but um, for some reason or other, the American promoters didn't think that the American public wanted to watch open wheel racing. They thought they preferred the big sports cars and the Trans Am, which was coming on strong then as well, with that mighty battle between Pinelli Jones and his must in the Mustang, Dan Gurney in the Chrysler, Sam Posey in the Chrysler, and of course Roger Penske with uh, Mark Donahue in the Chevrolet um, Camaro, and then they moved to the AMC Javelin of all things and, and dominated the championship again. So. It was a tough series, um, and the promoters, for some reason, uh, just seem to think that people like to watch those big cars with lots of bodywork on, rather than open wheels. And I'm afraid that um, after about eight or nine years, the old Formula 5000 kind of bit the dust, which was a shame, really. It was, it was a great formula. You mentioned Roger Penske. He was the, uh, um, the guest of honor, I guess, or the uh, at, at Amelia Island this year. And you raced with him, I guess here according to the schedule here, 1971, and uh, in a Ferrari 512. What was it like working with Penske? And and were were you co-driving with Donahue? I co-drove with Mark in in the 512, Sunoco 512, which has subsequently become the most iconic and the most expensive and the most well-known 512 ever built. And we were on the pole. We did four races: Daytona, Sebring, Le Mans, and Watkins Glen. And uh, we were on the pole at three of the four. And I think we qualified third at Le Mans because we didn't have a long tail. And, of course, Le Mans, you know, you've got those that four-mile straight. And uh, Porsche 917s were had the legs on us down there. Um, and it was a fantastic car to drive. And obviously, driving with Roger, you just know that you've got the best equipment. And he had great guys. Woody Woodard was the chief mechanic. And he just favored that car and I mean it was a brilliant car and Mark was a great guy to drive with because he was safe and steady and fast and um, you know you knew you were in with a good chance and we led every one of those bloody races and we never finished one Um, we just had I mean Mark got involved in a huge shunt at Daytona when we were miles in front of the 24 hour in the middle of the night when Vic Elford a tire went down on the 917 causing a bit of a melee and Mark of course slowed down as he saw this you know cars flying in all directions in front of him and some twerp <laughs> in, a nine, in a 911 ran into him who we'd lapped about 50 freaking times oh and then um, then we went to Sebring and we were on the pole there and led again and um, Mark hated um, um, Pedro Rodriguez. Why? I don't know. But he just couldn't couldn't stand him. And he was driving the Golf 917, or one of the Golf 917. And um, they had a coming together out on the back end of the circuit. This was the original Sebring, which was about five and a half miles long. At one point, you were you know you were a couple of miles away from the pits, and we're never quite sure what happened. Mark said that Pedro ran into him. Pedro said he ran into the other. Anyway, uh, we were out of that one. Then we went to Le Mans, and um, you know, we we were in with a chance. We were pretty quick, but the Porsches had those long tails. But gosh, in the race, the engine blew, um, and it was a brand new engine from Ferrari, which we only put in on the Friday night before the race. Brand new, and um, it blew at about seven or eight o'clock at night in the evening and then we went to Watkins Glen for our last race and we were on the pole again Mark led for about 35 minutes and um, the uh, upright snapped front left upright most 
most unusual thing to happen, especially to a Penske prepared car. So we were out of that one as well. Uh, so, but that car now, you know, Lawrence, uh, Lance Stroll, the Formula One driver, um, his dad, Lawrence, owns that car now, the, the, the uh, Penske Sunoco Ferrari. So uh, it's got a good home, uh, but it's, uh, and as I say, it's probably the most iconic Ferrari ever raced, and it never won a race, never won a thing. Oh, that's a shame. Interesting. You also race for uh, with uh, is it John Wire Automotive? Yeah, I raced for him before I raced Roger. I raced for Wire in seven in sixty eight, sixty nine, and um, there were four of us: Brian and Brian Redmond, Jackie X, and me and Paul Hawkins. And um, the team won the world championship for sports cars that year, and then the following year, nineteen sixty nine, I drove with Mike Halewood. And Jackie Oliver drove with Jackie X, and we won the World Sports Car Championship again as a team. And um, Paul Hawkins and I won at Monza. Uh, we should have won at Watkins Glen, but the team said that they wanted Jackie X to win, so they slowed. We were leading by nearly a lap at Watkins Glen, and they slowed us down made, to get Jackie to win it. So that was that was a good couple of years. I was another good team, you know, great engineers. Uh, great team manager um, John Wire really knew what he was doing when it came to long distance racing um, having been the team manager for Aston Martin back in 69 when they won Le Mans with Roy Salvadori and of course you all know Carol Shelby yes. in Aston Martin uh-huh. and let, that was a wire car let me ask you this so you know if you look at someone like John Wire and you look at Roger Penske and I mean these are amazing team owners and team managers, what makes their team so special and so successful? And Because you, you raced with those guys. You were under their helm, so to speak. So what was your experience with them that made them so well, special? Both, well, both of them, of course, know exactly what they want. They've got, they've got their goals, and they, and they don't get sidetracked. They don't go off at a tangent and um, suddenly go after you know, oh, the, the latest thing or whatever. They they really, and they make sure, the other thing, of course, which they're really good at in, ter- in terms of team management, is to have really good people working for them, which is the key. You've got to have good mechanics. You've got to have a good chief engineer. And Roger had the best chief engineer, really, a chap called Don Cox, who uh, was an ex-GM engineer. He was, he was fantastic. Him and Mark worked together beautifully. And so they made a great team, and they really knew how to set a car up. This, of course, is the day before you had all that, you know, diagnostic kit. You didn't have computers to work stuff out. I mean, the driver would go out and say, well, I think we need to do this. And Don Cox would say, yeah, well, okay, we could do that or we could do it this way. And they would work together and, and make the car super competitive. And John Wire had a guy called John Horston working for him, who was his engineer. And he also was a terrific engineer. And um, they, they just... And of course, they make sure that the car is really put together well. I mean, they don't take chances. They crack test everything. They test as much as they can, uh, and they make sure that the car is really, really well put together. And um, some people just don't seem to have that ability to do that, even when they're given a lot of good opportunity. But um, I suppose you'd look at Chip Ganassi and say the same sort of thing. I mean, he knows how to run a team. He really does. Um, and these guys, not everybody's like that, you know. I mean, they, they've got the money, but of course they get the money because they they get the success, they get the wins, and they get the sponsorship. The uh, fast forward to uh, was it was a seventy four, seventy five when you were racing the BMW and IMSA, yeah. and and that's kind of like when I started coming on the scene a little bit as a kid because I started going to Daytona and Sebring, and I was watching you guys back then. And oh, yeah. the, it was the days of the 935, the mighty, the mighty, you know, Moby Dick, uh, the, you know, yeah, the, the yeah. your your, B, your CSI BMWs. Tell us about those experiences, because well, you drove I both on, those cars, right? Yeah, I uh, in 1976 I had been driving a Jaguar in England for um, for the factory, which was a very very badly run, badly run effort, <laughs> um, and uh, at the end of the year I. Well, in 1976, I did my first TV show, too, for CBS. And uh, towards the end of the year, Teddy Mayer, who ran McLaren, uh, rang me up and asked if I'd be interested in driving in IMSA in a, in a BMW Turbo 320i, uh, which would be run. It, it, would be, it would be a factory engine, a factory BMW car, 
but it was going to be run by McLaren out of Detroit. So obviously I said yes. Mm-hmm. And um, so we started that and ran that 77, 78, 79. And that was uh, really a successful little car. It wasn't the most reliable because it was, you know, a four-cylinder bombshell. And I mean, hmm. you know, back then in 77, I mean, this thing, two litres, just right at two litres. Um, what's that, 64 cubic inches? Um, no, 120 cubic inches. I mean, that thing would give like 650 horsepower. But it was a tad unreliable. But, <laughs> you know, we won quite a few races in that and had a lot of fun. The team manager was a guy called Roger Bailey, who's another Englishman who I've known since crikey. We, we used to do club racing together back in the 59, 60, 61. And um, he moved over here with work for McLaren. And he, uh, he, he'd gone on to a lot of other good stuff. He, he ran Indy Lights for... I don't know, 15 years. Um, but he, he, he and I had a lot of fun together, and it was a great team. And, of course, Teddy Mayer was the boss, and uh, Wiley McCoy was our engine man, and Wiley was very methodical and very good on the end, very good on engine. McLaren got a great engine shop there in Detroit. So we ran the car out of there, and we had a lot of, you know, a lot of success with that car. But the 935 was just a bit too much for us because we were only two-litre with a single turbo. You know, the 935 was a was a was a flat six, a flat uh, six. So they had two turbos, and of course they were almost twice the capacity, like three and a half liters as opposed to two. So they had a lot more punch out of the slow corners than we than we could ever get, um, and they were tough to beat. Although we did beat them in some places quite a lot, and um, so that was always fun to drive, and that was a good, fun little car, front engine, rear drive, lovely. ZF gearbox, five-speed gearbox, smoother still. Really, really good fun to drive that car. Later on, you moved into uh, now the European had the uh, 956s, and then in, for whatever reason, I think it's something to do with the position of the driver, where his legs are in the front suspension. The 962. Right. So, give us a little uh, uh, insight as to the 956 and the 952, uh, the 962, in terms of racing and, and characteristics of the car. Well, it was the first time I'd ever driven the ground effect car where, you know, the air going under the car helped pull you down as well as the air going over the top. I'd, I'd driven wing cars. I mean, I was right at the beginning. When I first started driving, there were absolutely no wings. And then gradually wings sprouted, you know, first of all, attached to the suspension, then attached, then they, they broke, so they attached it to the car. And then we started sprouting little front wings to counterbalance the rear wing, and so we got more and more downforce. And then, you know, we had the era of ground effect where the bottom of the car was shaped and sort of slightly wing-shaped at the front and a, and a very big tunnel for the air to evacuate, so you've got a vacuum under the car. And the 956 was like that. Then uh, John Bishop, who ran IMSA, mm-hmm. didn't like the way the driver's legs or feet were in front of the front wheels. <laughs> yeah. So, so, so Porsche capitulated and they lengthened the car so that the driver's legs and the feet were behind the, the front axle. Um, that was the only difference, really. <clears throat> and, of course, that became, the 962 became, well, the 956 to the 962 became incredibly successful cars for customers. You know, I mean, they sold hundreds, well, yeah, hundreds of them. And they were all winners. And it was a great car and it was a, it was a it was good value, you know. I mean, it seemed like a hellishly expensive car at the time, but the fact was, it would run forever. The gearbox would run forever. The engines would run forever, um, and they always had trucks there with tons of spare parts. Very expensive spare parts, <laughs> but but it was uh, but it was an incredibly successful era there for for Porsche in the 956 and 962. And then I was driving with John Fitzpatrick, and in 1982, after I left BMW, we um, I drove his 935, and we had some wins in that. Um, and then he bought a 956, which he raced over here in SCCA races, because uh, the SCCA hadn't said that wheels, that the legs were too far in front. But then he wanted to do IMSA, so he had to get. So he got a couple of 962s, and we raced. He he had two setups: one setup in San Diego, and another setup at Silverstone in England. So we raced a 962 both here. And in England, uh, well, in Europe, um, including Le Mans, 
And um, we had some pretty good outings, but you were always up against the factory who had their own cars. The Rothmans cars were factory cars, and they were tough to beat because they were always that one step ahead of what they had sold to the public, you know. So um, we could do all sorts of things to the car ourselves to try and hopefully improve it. But um, the baseline of the car was so good that it was tough to improve, really. I mean, there wasn't a hell of a lot to improve on. Obviously, the factory could find little tweaks here and there, especially on the engine side, to give themselves a bit of an advantage. Either another couple of laps of fuel at Le Mans, which, of course, is vital. Cut down, you, you know, you cut out one fuel stop. Uh, that's a lot of time at Le Mans and stuff like that. So, But I enjoyed driving with John, and I enjoyed, enjoyed driving the 962. But it was the first time I'd driven a car where the faster you went through the corner, the more it gripped, which to start with is a bit unnerving, you know. <laughs> um, now, of course, all, the, all these cars today have got the most unbelievable um, downforce and uh, and uh, have, the grip factor is incredibly high, which, of course, is why all these drivers are so fit now. You've got to be fit because the G-loads are extraordinary. When you were racing back in the day, um, you were racing, obviously, against guys like Al Holbert and uh, Bob Aiken and yeah. and, and uh, um, uh, Brian Redman. Your friend, and yeah, and, and yeah. some of your friends. So uh, we had Sam Posey on the air a long time ago, and Sam's been on our show a few times. And I asked Sam this question, and, and, and Brian Redman, one of the reasons why I know he said he got out of racing is because back in the late 60s and early 70s, it seemed like every time you go to a race— you never knew whether you're going to be th- whether you're going to finish or not. You know, you never were going to be there because there were so many accidents and and safety was a huge issue. But I asked I asked uh, um, Sam. I said, so in the morning of the race when you're getting ready to 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 go out there, what goes through your mind? And one of the things he said to me was, I look in the mirror and I ask myself, is this going to be the last time that I brush my teeth? Because he was frightened back in the day. I mean, but but what happens is when you get in the car, all that goes away. You're focused, and it's only about racing, and nothing else matters. Did you go through that, and what what were your thoughts? Well, funny enough, exactly the same sort of thing crossed my mind. And, the, and of course, the reason it crosses your mind when you're brushing your teeth in the morning, is this the last time I'm going to brush my teeth, is because you're looking at yourself, you're there, you're alone in the bathroom, or in your bedroom, putting your clothes on, getting ready to go out, or getting in a car. And I used to wave. We lived in a little cottage in England. And, you know, I had a wife and two little boys, uh, Greg and Guy. And um, I'd go in, I'd look at them in the mirror, and I used to think, then, oh, my God, am I going to see them again? And, but it, and, of course, the reason you're thinking that there is because you know that when you get to the racetrack and you get in the car, all that's going to go away. You're not going to be thinking about that. Um, although, obviously, Sam thought about it enough because he did retire pretty young. And and James Hunt had those same feelings. He retired. He won the World Championship, did one more year, and basically quit because he just said, this is too bloody dangerous. It really is. Um, and, of course, it was then. I mean, people just got killed right, left, and center. And... Um, it was very off-putting, and I, you know, I've been married to Margaret now for it'll be sixty years next year that we were first married, and um, you know, I, I look back and I think how strong she must have been to put up with all that. Um, but of course, in the back of all of our minds, my mind, her mind, is that old feeling. You know, what well, isn't going to happen to me? I'm going to be all right somehow. She used to think, well, Dave will be okay because he just won't, you know, do stupid stuff. But the thing was that things used to break. You know, engines blew all the time and spread oil all over the track. And the tracks were incredibly dangerous. There was nowhere to go, no runoff area, no guardrail, no stuff at all. You know, just, what you got is trees, trees and ditches and barbed wire fences and stuff like that. Um, I mean, it's at Spa in 1960. Sterling Marsh had a crash in practice in the Lotus, broke both his legs, had to be carted away to hospital. Chris Bristow got decapitated in the race when he went off the road and went through a barbed wire fence and cut his head off. And Alan Stacey was killed in the race when he averted him in the face. Um, so that was, a, that was a tough weekend. Um, and in 68, I went to Jimmy Clark's funeral. And that did worry me, because I thought, gosh, if Jimmy Clark can get killed, I suppose I've got to face facts here, you know, I'm in, 
obviously it could happen to all of us if it could happen to Jimmy Clark it could happen to me and I went with Mike Spence and um, and Mike Spence Colin Chapman chose Mike Spence to replace Jimmy at Lotus and uh, two weeks later I was at Mike Spence's funeral because he went to Indy to take Jimmy's place and got killed on about second day he was there so in two weeks I went to two funerals and in 68 we lost what five drivers Joe Slesser in the Honda at Rouen uh, um, uh, Scarfioli was killed in a hill climb in a Ferrari in a Porsche um, so yeah I mean and and I think in the end Sam just realised you know um, that the best thing to do would probably be to give up me and Brian Redman never did yeah. <laughs> Brian Redman Brian Redman kept getting hurt <laughs> and still kept coming back I mean I never got hurt um, which was a miracle an absolute complete miracle don't ask me how it happened but it did I never got hurt because Brian Redman my best friend his only comment on that he says well you weren't going fast enough there <laughs> <laughs> some friend he turned out of it <laughs> yeah so, so were you more worried about other drivers or mechanical failures when you're driving? Mechanical, really, was the main really? thing. Um, you know, other, other drivers were a bit of a worry, but the real the real thing that frightened me was mechanical, because cars were pretty flimsy in those days, mm-hmm. especially Lotus. I mean, Colin Chapman, you know, he knew like that weight was just so vital. So his cars would be just as light as you know they were, and they were very very fragile and they broke a lot. Um, but he's not the only one. Lola's broke a lot. Um, one of the reasons I don't go, I never did vintage racing because all those cars were were crap when they were new. They were great when they were brand new. <laughs> Here they are, 40, forty years older, and you're and you're forty years older, and now you want to drive them again <coughs> with some idiot hedge fund manager who's got millions of dollars. And thinks he's thinks he's the Ayrton Center of the twenty first century, uh, and he's driving some car here at Road America to do two hundred mile an hour down the main straight. So that's why I don't do vintage racing. Um, I wasn't too worried about it because those days us drivers were much more respectful of each other because the cars were so flimsy and they would break so easily. So you you didn't do the stuff they do today, all that swerving around and blocking. And, you know, you just didn't do that. Just wasn't. Too, too ripped, you know, because the risk was, was enormous. I mean, these days they run into each other and they have the most horrendous shunt, and absolutely nothing happens. I mean, very rare for anybody to get hurt by the level and killed. Um, so, you, you raced, anyway. you raced in, um, you did some NASCAR, you did a little Formula One, you did uh, yeah. uh, an IndyCar stint. So, comparing the drivers, you talk about, you know, how you guys were mindful and respectful of yourselves, one another, and the vehicles, the cars. When you race in some of these other classes, let's just say, I know a couple of British drivers have met and European drivers have, have kind of said that Americans tend to rawhide a little bit. And I know I've had Mario Andretti on the show, and I know I've had Parnelli Jones on the show, and both those guys, and Bobby Unser, talk about rawhiding, these guys, uh, you know, they're no holes bar with these guys. What are your thoughts on that? I, yeah, I mean, I don't think... I mean, all the top English guys, you know, like people like Sterling Moss, um, Mike Hawthorne, and, of course, Lewis Hamilton now, and all these guys, they all give as good as they get. Um, uh, but, I mean, Mario... Uh, the thing about people like Mario and Parnelli Jones, particularly, was their adaptability. They would drive so many different things. You mm-hmm. know, they'd drive on the dirt in a front-engine roadster, and... Then they're driving a Can-Am car, rear-engine Can-Am car, with tons of downforce and non-asphalt. Then they'd race on the dirt. Um, but I think that... Um, but they weren't foolhardy. I mean, they didn't go running into each other no, no. like that. No, Because, no. you know, they would fall apart. NASCAR was a little bit more free and easy because I think they always felt those cars were pretty secure. But, of course, anything that comes to a dead stop, however strong it is, you know, it's going to do a lot of damage um, and of course they have improved enormously now but I I, I, I don't think um, James Hunt I remember the famous time he complained about Mario going around the outside of him at some corner in Holland I think it was 
a place called Zanfort in Holland. <laughs> and Mario, Mario overtook him on the outside. James Hunt said some stupid remark like, I say, old chap, you shouldn't do that to them. <laughs> so you can imagine how Mario retreats. <laughs> yeah, how Mario gave an answer to that. Uh, again, we can't, be te- we can't be saying that on the radio, but I mean, yeah. <laughs> Something <laughs> like you weren't going yeah. fast enough, I know. Okay, let me ask you this. Were there some drivers that you really tr- truly enjoyed racing against? You know how you, I, I, you know some people you like to go door handle door handle with. So, are there any drivers that you really enjoyed? Uh, let's just say, track sparring with. You know, I mean, from a competitive side. Well, I always enjoyed racing against Brian Redmond because he was tough, very tough. Mm-hmm. Uh, I enjoyed driving with and against Mike Halewood. We had uh, a lot of fun together. Um, and Frank Gardner was another one that was good. Um, Graham Hill, I'd raced against Graham Hill a few times, and um, he was a pretty cool customer. Um, Damon Hill's dad, of course. Uh-huh. Um, so, but um, I raced against so many people because I did so many different sorts of racing that it was never the same people week in and week out, you know. Um, like today, you look at the Formula One, and the same guys drive Formula One. The same guys keep on driving, so they just race against each other all the time. And that's all they do. They race against those guys, so they know exactly. They know exactly what these other guys are going to do. I never really knew that because I'd race against the Canon race one weekend, which would have forty guys in it. Then the next race, I'd be in the Formula Five Thousand, which would have another forty guys in it. But there'd be different forty guys. Mm-hmm. Um, so, but um, I never raced against anybody who I thought was, you know, um, was was bad to race against. Um, no, I mean, but I mean, I did enjoy racing people I knew, like Brian, Richard Atwood, uh, who won Le Mans first time for Porsche in 1970. And um, so, yeah, um, and nobody that um, nobody that frightened me or anything like that. Did <laughs> you ever? Did you ever do any rallies? Any rally driving? No, I never. No, I thought about it, but I should have probably done a couple of rallies when I was a kid, but I never did, and. Um, I, I never went back to rallying, which of course, where Vic Alford, of course, was a was a rally driver turned race driver, and um, very successful at both forms of racing, um, un- uncannily successful, really. But uh, no, I never did rally. Always looked good fun. I never raced on dirt either. I imagine that's good fun. You raced. Uh, you mentioned Graham Hill. Um, I think one of your last races in the late '80s was with Damon Hill. What was it like racing with the father compared to racing with the son? And and I'm sure his father Graham had a little influence on him, didn't he? Oh yeah, I'm sure he had a huge influence on him. Um, but I raced. I, I not. I didn't race against Graham uh, Damon. I raced with. You Damon raced with Damon. right, right. The last time I did Le Mans, 1989, he and I drove a Porsche. Great Britain in the Porsche car in the Porsche uh, in the Le Mans in the 962, mm-hmm. which was heavily modified. Unfortunately, not very well modified. It weren't going very well, and it broke anyway. But it was it was fun to drive with Damon, and of course, this was before he had done any Formula One, so he was a very much an up and coming young guy then, um, and was def- very deferential to his senior driver, i.e. me. Uh, so, <laughs> but uh, I never raced against uh, Damon. He came along a bit after me. Okay. Well, yeah. <laughs> so then, what prompted you to quit racing, and then uh, you went into broadcasting after that, right? Well, I started broadcasting uh, in 1976, and I didn't retire from racing until 1990. I probably raced probably more, three or four, maybe five years too long. Um, but I just realized that, um, you know, when you get to 40, well, nearly, I was nearly 50 when I retired, and um, <clears throat> it's just, you know, you're just not as quick. Um, and it's harder to get drives because there's all these young drivers coming on, taking all the drive. So there was nothing really decent to drive. <clears throat> and um, and I realized that I needed to do a lot of training to be a lot fitter than that were. At 50, at 50 you've got to be a lot fitter <clears throat> to try and match some kid of 23 or 4. Um, so I just decided it was time to, to bow out, really. I'll never have officially retired, actually. So good come back tomorrow. So, of all the racing that you've done, um, where, where, where's your where's your heart? What 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 part of racing do you like? Is it GT racing? Is it uh, open wheel racing? Is it uh, and 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 what did you miss? What did you want to do that you thought, well, maybe I should have done that and I did? 
Well, I enjoyed all of them, but I think that really a single-seater racer, you know, like uh, like a Formula 5000 or an IndyCar, there's something very special about an open-wheel car when you, you really feel like you are part of the car. Anything with bodywork and you're sitting to one side of it, either on the left or the right, and you've got a roof over your head, you know, it feels like a lot more... I know there's a lot, lot more metal around you, um, and in some ways it's safer. In other ways, of course, it's not, because you can get trapped in those damn things, um, and they get hot as hell in there. But I think my favourite would have been the um, was the Formula 5000, because they, they were fast, really fast, lots of grunt, lots of power, lots of grip, um, and as I say, when you're sitting in a single seater, you kind of feel like you are the car, and you, and you really feel a part of it. So I think, I think single seaters are probably the most fun. That's but I drove I drove a lot of GT cars, like 962s, the um, McLaren M20. I drove in the Can-Am in 1972. Was a fantastic car, unfortunately outclassed by the 91730 Turbo. Of of uh, Mark Roger, Roger Penske's 917 but um, but that was a great car to drive a lot of fun it was fast and it, it did everything you wanted a race car to do I mean it was a perfect race car but just about 100 horsepower down if you uh, I was going to comment on what you said about the open wheel car uh, Brian Redman um, Pernell Jones a lot of the guys answer they all said the same thing when you're an open wheel single seater car you're one with the car it's just an amazing feeling and you can't describe it and I used to do some club racing and stuff so and I've never done an open car I've always done GT cars but I was going to ask you this the um, the uh, race cars the GT cars now you're from England so you're used to driving on the opposite side of the road. So you're used to a right-hand drive car. Why is right. it that all the race cars, the, the 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 drivers are on the right side and not on the left? Even in the, in the American cars that race over here at Daytona, Sebring, and, uh, and like Laguna Seca and Watkins Glen and places like that? Well, it's because most, most races on road courses are clockwise. So oh. most of the corners, so there's more right-hand corners than left-hand corners. And you're better to have the weight over the inside wheel. So right-hand drive for Le Mans, Nürburgring, and all those corners, you know, all those tracks where, where you're going clockwise. To sit on the right-hand side of the car is, is better than on the left. Although more and more I notice that cars are going to left-hand drive. Of course, a Trans Am car yes. was always a left-hand drive. And I must say, when I first drove a left-hand drive car on the road course, especially someone like Laguna Seca, which is, you know, you're going <laughs> predominantly to the right, I always feel just a little bit, it just feels a bit weird because when you go round the corner, the car rolls, so the passenger seat is sort of, you You know, the, the passenger seat is now coming up level with you. You, you're, on the, you're on the sinking side of it, on the outside of a right-hander where you're going around a right-hander at like 100 mile an hour, and you feel like you're sitting in the wrong place. You're on the low side of the car. <laughs> and, and really, you should be... Um, you, you should be um, get your weight over the wheel, get your weight over those inside wheels. So that's why they're that's why they're right hand. Things like all those Ferraris they race, you know, the sports cars and the nine sixty twos, they're all right hand drive. You're right. We got a minute. That's or two, we got a minute or two left, and I know you were you, we kept you longer than you wanted to be, but that's I'm very thankful that you're hanging out with us. But give us a when you race Le Mans, give us a uh, a hairy, scary moment for you at Le Mans. Uh, particularly probably back in the Molson Street, right? Well, yeah, I suppose the scariest moment for me at the Molson was um, was in 1969, and we were lying about fifth uh, with Mike Harewood, and um, our team car with Jack Yicks and Jack Oliver was about a lap behind us. And the 908 Porsches were a fraction quicker than the GT40s around the circuit, and about the same down the straight. We were all doing about, the GT40 at Le Mans would do about 208, 210. And the 908s were about the same. This is the year before the 917 came on with the big 5 e trend. And these two 908s were racing against each other very strenuously, two factory cars. And they had both passed me, um, but they were pulling away very slowly. 
So as we're going down the Morsan Strait, we're up to right about 200. These two guys are in front of me, um, you know, a couple of hundred yards in front, maybe. And um, there's these four taillights. And the, the feature of the Morsan Strait is the, what they call the kink, which is a right-hand sweeper about three-quarters of a mile before the end of the straight, you go through this right-hand sweeper. And the big thing was, was it flat out, or did you just have to lift a little bit? Uh, but you had to take a line. You had to you know, do a proper racing line if you were in a GT40, which didn't have any downforce at all. Um, anyway, they both sweep through the corner. And then there's this blinding flash of white headlight light, lights up the sky, and points back towards me and then there's this huge bloom of fire breaks out um because meanwhile i'm approaching this corner around about 200 and 210 so naturally i break hard swoop through the corner and now the road is completely blocked with blazing wreckage and smoke and dust and i go through this you know basically just shut my eyes i mean what am i going to do i don't i don't know where to swerve to because i can't see anything then as, and on my right, there's this Porsche stuck to the guardrail, blazing away. Um, and then <clears throat> I burst out the smoke and dust. And there is the cab of another 908 bouncing down the road end over end. Um, so I'm still slowing down and steering to miss this car. And then the driver pops out and he starts bouncing down the road as well. And... Um, so I miss them all. Um, and it was my inlap, um, my fuel stop. So I came in and handed over to Mike and said, Christ, I said, there's, there's been a shunt on the small town I said, some guy's dead and he's lying there in the road. And, you know, there <laughs> was a guy called Udo Schutt. And old Udo was a bit on the heavy side for a racing driver, to be blunt. He was, he was quite, he was quite paunchy. <laughs> anyway. Anyway, it must have been all that blubber. Old Udo was absolutely unhurt. Um, <laughs> That's a super yeah. story. David, uh, we're up against the clock. I want to thank you very okay. much for hanging out with us here. Right. Uh, thank and you. we look forward to having you on again. Great uh, luck with your book, Hobo. Right, Robert, you can, thank you. Hobo, yeah. Yeah, and then uh, you take care, and we'll uh, look forward to having you on the show again. We'll see some of the races once this uh, COVID thing blows over. How about that? If you want to buy Hobbo, you can just send an email to hobbobook at davidhobbs.com and I will send you send you a signed copy. So hobbobook at davidhobbs.com and I'll send you a signed copy. Uh, thanks for having me on, Robert. All right. Very good. Thank you very much. Take care. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye. Hey, I want to tell my listeners, uh, thanks for tuning in to Nostalgic Radio Cars. Don't forget, every Tuesday night here in the Tantalk Radio Network, you can find us between 7 and 8 p.m. And don't forget to follow us on our social media. Right, Bobby? Yep, that's right. And uh, hopefully we'll see you on the road, some of these car shows, upcoming shows here in the next couple of months. In the meantime, everybody stay safe, drive carefully, and love your family. WTAN, Clearwater, FM 106.1, WDCF, Dade City, FM 102.3, WZHR, Zephyr Hills, FM 104.3. Listen.